0: And if you set yourself up hoping to achieve the same experience or the same feelings or the same adrenaline rush in your next career, which is typically going to be employment or it might be study, if you're hoping for the same and hoping to achieve the same, you might find yourself let down a little bit. And, and that's what I find athletes often bump into, that they say it's not the same. Well, athletes, I'm going to be pretty clear with you from my perspective, no, it's not the same. That's why your athletics experience is so unique and precious. And, and it's not about being upset that you can't get the same kind of experience in your employment world or in your next career chapter. It's more about celebrating and acknowledging the amazing achievement experience that you've had. And popping that in your pocket and holding that onto that forever.
1: You're listening to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes sharing their stories of how they transitioned out of sport and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and I'm very excited to share these stories of amazing Australian athletes with you. Today, I thought we'd change it up a little bit. Now, we've heard from a range of athletes from a range of different sports about their journey out of sport and into their next career phase. And we know each and every athlete has faced their own opportunities and challenges. But I wanted to understand a little bit more about the psychology behind these athletes and their transitions. So to help me with that, I've invited Georgia Riddler onto the podcast. Georgia is the lead performance psychologist at the Australian Olympic Committee and she's basically advising and consulting and working with athletes on matters relating to peak performance and their well-being, namely leading into the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. So that obviously hasn't gone ahead but we've got a lot of great information in here about how her role has changed over the last decade or so, the importance of having a work-life balance what impact an athlete's mental wellbeing has on their ability to perform at their peak level and also business professionals. So we go a lot into both during sport and after sport, the lessons that sport can actually teach you. And I found I learned a lot from this episode, so I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you all. So I'd like to welcome Georgia Ridler. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. I'm very excited to have our first um, industry expert here with us today. I think we've spoken to about 14 or 15 athletes so far, all from a variety of sports, but what we haven't had is a psychologist. But I did want to start with just hearing a little bit about your backstory. So how you actually got into psychology, the motivation behind it.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Really pleased to be on board. And I think this is a really good opportunity for athletes to hear uh, another perspective So look, my story, um, I'll actually take you right back. So my story started back when I was a gymnast. So that was my primary background. I I knew that I loved the sport. Um, I was quite competitive at it, but I was always challenged by some of those skills that were very scary, um, very big releases. And often the coach's responses would just be, you know, I just do it, just do it. And if you didn't do it, then they'd be angry at you and then you'd be punished for not doing something that's extremely scary that most people normally wouldn't do. So I, I knew from a very young age that there was something there that would be of interest, but I didn't know what that meant. As time went by, I, um, I finished high school. I knew that I wanted to do something in the space of psychology because I liked having conversations with people, or maybe it was just simply that um, many friends in year 12 would come to me with their problems. <laughs> so um, yeah, So I knew that counseling would be a space for me. But at that point in time, sports psychology didn't really, didn't really exist or wasn't highly promoted in Australia. So I went to university and did my undergraduate degree. And at the end of that degree, again, within Australia, sports psychology wasn't um, highly recognized. There was one course down in Melbourne, but I just didn't foresee myself as a Brisbane girl heading down to Melbourne. So I took a year off and I actually traveled the US because I was at that point in time really enjoying gymnastics coaching and I could see that connection between psychology and coaching and I knew it was really big in the States. So I did like a gap year I guess um, after my three, four year degree and I traveled just for six months just going to different clubs and learning and coaching and Um, It was a really great adventure. And by the time I came back, I had real clarity about what sports psychology was from both a wellbeing and a performance perspective um, and how that was missing in the sport that I was involved in. So I returned to Australia at that same time or within about two months, a master's of sports psychology opened up at USQ up in Toowoomba, which was pretty cool. So I was fortunate enough to get into that program and um, completed the program there. So that was like my story, getting into psychology.
1: Yeah, so you've been through a couple sports. I'm guessing you've worked with a few different disciplines in that space, so different sports, Um, one of them being the Australian Olympic swim team. What's your role at the moment with the Australian Olympic Committee?
0: Sure. So my my title is Head of Psychology for the Australian Olympic Committee. And what that means is my role is to support athletes during the Games and that little transition post-Games. So not the full transition into retirement and all of those kinds of things. My role is more to support the network of sports psychologists around the country to provide the best services possible leading into and during a Games. So I will, I will be at the Games, I'll be there providing support to not only staff and athletes, but also, well, not only coaches and athletes, should I say, um, but also the staff who will um, and always do find that the Games has an impact
1: on them both professionally and personally. So that's overall my role. Is that a new program or is, has that been going for quite a while now? It's
0: no, every, every Olympics there's been a psychologist or typically two psychologists appointed to the AOC. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just a role that I think the role commences about a year out from an Olympics and concludes about two months after an Olympics. So it's been, it's been a tradition for the past I don't know how many decades, which is great. But I guess the area of psychology has been more accepted and people have become more aware of the value of it um, when travelling with a team, which is fantastic.
1: Before we get into it, do you see a big Mm -hmm. difference in how you approach psychology with individual athletes versus team sport athletes? Yeah, sure. I don't know if it's
0: so much different. There are different ways in which you engage with a group versus an individual, but at the end of the day... The the first thing that I think is important is people want to know that you are first and foremost a human being, even though you might be an expert in your field, you're a human being who also experiences stress and nerves and fears and decision making and all the things that your clients face. And I think as psychologists, if we can do a really good job of that, of showing that we are human beings, first and foremost, then people feel a greater connection and rapport can be built. And at the end of the day, for an individual or a team, what you're wanting to do is build that connection so that they know, first of all, that you're human. And second of all, that you actually care um, and you care about them as the person and them as the athlete. And then I find that either the athlete or the teams or the coaches then start to go, oh, okay, maybe she's okay. I'll, I'll share some things with her or I'll get her opinion on some things. Yeah,
1: I imagine it's been quite a tumultuous year for you, yourself, athletes, the Australian Olympic Committee, everyone. How have you seen COVID-19 firstly affect athletes' mental well-being and also for yourself? Does that mean your role continues on? How does that, how does that work? <laughs> Good question. Good questions. So
0: look, at the end of the day, I think for all of athletes, um, well, I think of all human beings, COVID has impacted, right? COVID has impacted people in the sense that our, well, we are more heightened, and that's what I say to people, we're more heightened in terms of how we respond to stress, because this year has been such an a changing and uncertain type of year. Uh, so, I think athletes have been significantly impacted, particularly those who were anticipating going to a 2020 Olympics. They've certainly been impacted in in the fact that it's just not on. Um, But not just that, you know, it's obviously impacted their ability to train, their relationships with people, the whole having to lock down, all of those things just add those extra sources of stress. So I guess the athletes who will do well through this process are those who are able to accept that this is an ever-changing space and it's an ever-changing landscape that will probably last another couple of years. And, and the sooner we can accept that and then really build flexibility in our thinking, I think that's going to have a really big impact on people rather than being fixed and then upset everything every time something changes.
1: Mm-hmm. And how about yourself? So that's
0: the first part. Yeah. Yes. The second part, you know, it's a really interesting question. And I was, um, I had a group chat with a few psychologists a couple of weeks ago about the fact that we really need to be careful to look after ourselves because, you know, obviously everyone has been impacted this year. And here are we supporting people who have been impacted. When we have also massively been impacted ourselves in terms of our life, in terms of our work, you know, because we are as human as everyone else. So, you know, I have been really advocating that psychologists do take their downtime at the end of this year. And although we are needed by many at the moment and many people are still really struggling, if we don't look after ourselves, then we can't support our clients. So I think that's a key piece. In terms of me and my role with the AOC, the AOC have just rolled us over. Our entire AOC headquarters team will just continue through to 2021 Olympics, which I think is booked in for the 23rd of July next year. We were asked if we would like to, first of all, everyone said yes. (laughs) Um, What a great team. We've got a really unique performance services team that focused on performance and then the well-being. Uh, So it's been, yeah, it's been a nice journey working with them. We've all said yes, that we want to continue the work on the way forward
1: as changing as it is. (laughs) I don't want it to be too morbid. So I am going to flip the question and say with the pandemic, there has been a lot of different ways that people have adapted. I myself, in terms of like yoga and meditation, it's become a lot more front of mind for me. What opportunities have you seen people take during this time? Is there anything from your perspective that you've taken up or from athletes, either either? Yeah, sure.
0: Look, I think it's a really good point that you raise and um, you beautifully word it because we talk to athletes all the time about looking for the opportunity and the obstacle. It's like a bit of a catchphrase for us. So any we bump into an obstacle and, and primarily it's injury or it's non-selection um, but primarily injury how do you find that opportunity in the obstacle? And really, it became the same thing with this pandemic. Okay, everyone worldwide is impacted. Sure, there might be some people in some countries who have found ways to continue training in the usual way. But if you can't train in the usual way, then what are the little things that you can do that you normally wouldn't because you wouldn't have had the time to? Like you said, you're taking on maybe yoga and meditation. I bet you normally wouldn't have done that because you just wouldn't have made the time. So it's a conversation that we are constantly having with athletes or particularly the last six months um, about what is it? What is that one area that your coach or you have identified for the last five years probably that, that you've never worked on? And most people will say, oh, my core, my core needs to be stronger. Well, here's the beautiful opportunity. Someone's just given you a few months here where you can't do what you normally do. So can you focus in on that and, and build off that so that you're better than anyone else in that space? Mm-hmm. And I, I think they're great ways to think of those opportunities. You know, I think for coaches, it's been that chance to maybe be home a little more than they usually have been. I'm sure it's probably driven some coaches nuts and maybe some of their parent partners nuts as well. But but they're just experiences that you never usually have and there's always something positive or, like you say, an opportunity that you
1: can pull out of it. Now, this is a question that I had a bit later, up, but I think it ties in nicely to what we're talking about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> how important do you see a work-life balance being for athletes? Has this, yeah, do you think this is important now more than ever? How, how do you see the balance?
0: Look, I think work-life balance is always an important factor. There's a few reasons for that. One is well-being, okay, and I think over the last 10 years, particularly with the AIS taking on athlete well-being managers across most sports now, I think there is more conversation happening around well-being, mental health, and what ties into that is that work-life balance. What I'm interested in too, though, is the performance aspect of it. So I think that the athletes that I've worked with over the years who have performed at their best time and time again, they have been the athletes who have had a balance of some nature. Now, it might not be the perfect balance, it might not be what you would think is balance or me, but for them, it was considered balance. Because what I think happens is when people have an amount of balance in their life, it allows them to have some perspective. And the more perspective we have, the more we're able to cope with changes and adversity because we're not so narrowly focused, and therefore our stress doesn't escalate as much as it normally would. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's a key piece. Now, I I can identify quite a few athletes that I think have even thought about their transition, therefore, you know, with work-life balance have thought about the kind of work, little bits of work that they're wanting to do that supports their transition. And in the past, coaches would have perceived that as the athlete's not focused. They're thinking about plan B. They're thinking about afterlife. But what it does is it often allows an athlete to just pause and think about what they would like to do rather than quietly stressing about it. And that just leads to rumination, which doesn't lead to good focus. So, yeah.
1: I have spoken to a few athletes now that have mentioned that when they see or when they start to think about transitioning, for them it's a perceived weakness because it's like they've given up on their dream, I guess, rather than, yeah, like you said, opening your perspective and actually sitting back and reflecting rather than ruminating on it. What would you say to those athletes in terms of them seeing it as like a perceived weakness to think about their future?
0: What I'd say to them is... If they want, went on a fantastic holiday, domestic, overseas, wherever it is, if they think back to their last fantastic holiday, I would just about guarantee that they would be laying there relaxing, enjoying, and maybe thinking about what their next holiday might look like. Does that mean it takes away from the holiday they're having? Generally not. Generally, it just means they're really enjoying it, and they're really relaxed, and they're really thinking ahead, and they're excited, and they're positive, positive. and how good is that? So why would we, when we're having a fantastic career, think that thinking about the next career is a bad thing? It's this perspective that I I, I don't know why we've come to it. I think it's something to do with, like you say, this Aussie way of thinking that it's a perceived weakness. But what I've found more and more again is that everyone knows they're going to transition. It's not a surprise. It's not a secret. It is going to happen and when it happens, you want it to be as smooth as possible. So in order to make it smooth, I would encourage you to plan it, plan the holiday. You know, don't just wait and hope that a holiday is going to happen. Plan the holiday of what it might look like. It doesn't have to be perfect again, but this is what it might look like, because then what you probably do is actually relax and let go about stressing about what that transition might look like, which actually allows you to focus on what you're wanting to achieve. Oh, my goodness, what a revelation. (laughs) Pardon my sarcasm. No,
1: (laughs) sarcasm is encouraged here. Um, (laughs) No, I think that's great. I think also you could say the same not only for athletes but for uh, maybe like young professionals as well. Rather than thinking like two steps ahead, I know I find myself doing it where you think about like what's next, where am I going, thinking about the end point rather than I guess the journey. um, Yes. It's something that I think is quite – Yeah, prevalent and and relevant in business as well.
0: Absolutely. And and look, it's not not so much about, you know, having this massive plan worked out, but giving yourself permission to make some notes, you know, even if it's just having a little notebook that you always have in your bag, that when you get some ideas about your next career, your transition or whatever it is, or the next professional development course you might want to do, you're just making notes for yourself so that you've just got a record of it. And it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be, oh my God, I've got to get this done in 10 years. Um, I think we have this perspective in life that things have got to be done really, really quickly. And when I meet with young professionals who, or even mid-career professionals who are like, oh my gosh, I've got this, this, and this. And I think to myself, well, you have still probably got another 40, 30, 20 years in your working life. There's plenty of time but uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's the age of technology where we just think time is scarce and, and we quick. We need to have everything and do everything now, but we really don't. And you're not going to know where you need to be in 10 years' time until probably seven years' time. So, you know, it's, again, it's about just taking those incremental steps. So, you know, again, I'd be saying to athletes in terms of transition or young professionals, who most likely have been an athlete at some time, some point in their life, think about it just in terms of the stepping stones of goals that we normally would have. And you just take one step at a time and before you know it, you're there, but you've enjoyed the journey. You've
1: just reminded me. So I <coughs> came to think about this podcast idea probably about December last year, okay, um, and I started to jot down like what equipment I would need, and then I, would, I started to think about like who I should interview. And so I did have that little notebook, and it's the first time oh. I've probably done it, where I've started to just like brainstorm, I guess you could say. So it's funny that you brought up that because it's kind of how this podcast started, I guess, was that little <laughs> brainstorming session and that little notebook. So I'll have to find it. I want. I'm intrigued to see now. 15, 16 episodes in what it looks like and how much yes. has happened. Ab-
0: absolutely. Look, I'd encourage anyone who's listening to just, you know, go to Kmart, buy that $4 journal and just and just start. Just start jotting notes because I have the same and I can go back even 15 years now and see some of the things I've written and some of the things have come to fruition now. Some of them I look at and I go, oh, that didn't come to fruition. But I'm not going to beat myself up about it because actually I took a different path and I can see the point in time where I took that different path, which led me to where I am now. And other things that I can see, oh, yeah, I think that's going to come full circle, but it probably won't be for another five years. And that's okay.
1: When I first started doing the journal as well, I tried to like dream big. So I did have like a psychologist. I was like, I don't know who it's going to be. But I did have the likes of, I guess, like Nova Paris, Jeff Benick, like all of those listed down as like wish list people, I guess. Um, Yes. And so I think even writing down those goals and then exceeding them has been pretty cool to actually reflect Mm -hmm. back on. Um, Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) So we've talked a little bit about the work-life balance How can you see sport helping an athlete once they've transitioned out? So in terms of like managing their stress and their emotions, what skills do you think athletes learn that they can then take with them?
0: Yeah, this is a great one. And this is something athletes really need to do transitioning out because I think the focus becomes on what job, you know, what degree have you done or what courses have you done? And athletes then get focused on looking for jobs as opposed to just pausing again and thinking through what skills, assets do I have that will contribute to whatever job I'm going towards. And most of them are the things that they would take for granted. So honestly, I would say write a title called the most simple things or, you know, know, no brainers as the title and make a list of all of those skills and strengths and qualities that you have. And most of the time you'll find that in that list there will be things like, you know, the ability to travel, um, the ability to set goals, the ability to stay focused on a goal, the the loyalty required, um, working with a coach, working with teammates, like all of those things that they would just go, oh, but that's just what I do as an athlete. It's like, yeah, but actually these things are not always happening in a work environment. Just like sometimes in your sport, you may have found there were times when your team didn't gel well or weren't very cohesive or didn't achieve the goals that they were driving for. The same thing happens in the work environment. And they're going to be core skills that you can promote um, in terms of applying for jobs that other people have not been exposed to in the way that you have been exposed to. You know, most athletes have experienced some kind of team building. And, you know, if, if most athletes between age, say, 15 and 22 have experienced some team building activities and can see the value of how that impacted their team in terms of good team building that brought people together or not so good, that is a that is an insight that most 15 to 22-year-olds do not have. All, all they have is their just experience of every day. So they're the kinds of things that they can take forward in their transition, take forward into new employment roles to be able to say, I I understand how team building works. I have seen how this works. I understand how this doesn't work. I have, uh, I know how to set goals. You know, they're, they're really key skills that I think are really important but undervalued by an athlete because they do it every day.
1: It's normal to them. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. But that's why you always get someone else to go over your CV. You know, you always do because what you know for yourself, even I do, I don't just write it myself. Whatever, whatever you know as the usual or you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just what I do, there's already always a skill there. There's always something important. Mm.
1: Soft skills is like in particular, yes. Absolutely. I am curious to see uh, from your perspective, how have you seen athletes transition out of the sport and how it's affected them, particularly athletes that might be looking to retire during the midst of COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Good question. Look, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. It's going to be a tough couple of years transitioning out of sport, primarily because of the lower employment opportunities, let's say, for the time being. But that's not really to scare an athlete because, you know, athletes have done it tough this year. Athletes have done it tough over years with coaches and training and all the rest of it. So, I think what the key thing is for athletes when they're looking to transition or they've made the decision to retire is to really sit and brainstorm what the sport has given them. So these are the experiences, the qualities, the assets, all of the things that they have gained from being an athlete. Now, why do I say that? Because first and foremost, you need to walk out of the sport as a a person who has been an athlete rather than walk out of the sport as an athletic personality. And I think that's a really key piece. You walk out of the sport as a human being who's had an amazing athletic experience and that experience has added value to them as a human being. So that, with that kind of perspective, you can walk out of transition feeling like your backpack is full rather than your backpack is empty because you're looking ahead. Okay, so let me repeat that again, that if we if we really think about all of the things that have filled our backpack over the time of an athletic career, we'll walk out of the sport feeling like our backpack is full. Now, that feeling of a full backpack means that you've had a range of experiences. Those experiences don't need to be all positive experiences. So if you've had an awful team culture for the past year or five years ago or a coach who hasn't been as supportive as you've needed, they are still fundamental experiences that you've had through your sport that has shifted or changed or expanded, adapted who you are, which adds to your backpack, right? And then the process is that then you can step out of the sport with your backpack full of experiences that add value to whatever the next chapter holds for you. So, for me, that's step one. Know what's in your backpack and take it with you. All right, so the second point around transition is to really celebrate the career experience that you've had. I see an athletic career as a unique career that not many people have the opportunity to experience. And for those of you who have had um, who have excelled, and achieve some great feats in your sport. Sometimes it can be really uncomfortable or awkward or sometimes even feel a bit depressing going into jobs where you're not feeling like you're achieving as well as you did in your athletic career. But let me tell you that the athletic career you've had is like a gem. It's something that some people never experience in the rest of their life or in the careers that they have. So for most people, they'll have probably three or four careers over their lifetime, over their working life. For athletes, their athletic career is one just super unique experience that that produces really great highs and some really low lows, um, but at the end of the day is about the person achieving their personal best. Now, that's gonna be different when you transition. And if you set yourself up hoping to achieve the same experience or the same feelings or the same adrenaline rush in your next career, which is typically going to be employment or it might be study, if you're hoping for the same and hoping to achieve the same, you might find yourself let down a little bit. And, and that's what I find athletes often bump into, that they say it's not the same, Well, athletes, I'm going to be pretty clear with you from my perspective, no, it's not the same. That's why your athletics experience is so unique and precious. And and it's not about being upset that you can't get the same kind of experience in your employment world or in your next career chapter. It's more about celebrating and acknowledging the amazing achievement experience that you've had and popping that in your pocket and holding that onto that forever because not many people ever have that experience. And then, you know, and then the last part is then stepping into whatever the next part of your journey is, whatever the next chapter looks like, and taking that backpack with you
1: and and having the experiences that you you get to have in whatever that next chapter is it's um it's funny you mentioned that the first person that i spoke to on this podcast was lauren mitchell um a gymnast oh, yes. and she actually said to me she's like the rush the adrenaline it's just not the same when you go she's gone into radiology um but she she did say that that adrenaline rush that you get as an athlete it's very hard to try and find that post sport so it is it interesting is. you've mentioned it yeah it is. It's a
0: great point. And you know, what, what you've just said there is very similar to I think many athletes who say that, you know, I haven't been able to find it again. And unfortunately, you probably won't find it again, because it is so unique. Now, that doesn't mean where you are is not a good place. It doesn't mean the sport experience you had set you up for failure. It, it, like we don't need to make any of those assumptions, which athletes transitioning often do. I think instead what we need to do is go, this is what the sport has given me, and this is what I've really enjoyed from it, and that's part of my backpack. And now when I step into my next career, I look at whatever the job opportunity is, and I utilize some of the skills out of the backpack, but I'm not going to get to utilize all of them, not not for this career or not for this next chapter, and that's okay. And that adrenaline that Lauren was talking about, it's it's the same thing, that, that adrenaline, May not be able to be um, re experienced in your job part of your career, but you might be able to fulfill that experience in your hobbies, you know, the things that you normally wouldn't get to do because you're a full time professional athlete. So, you know, for me, when I finished gymnastics, I think I finished when I was about 18, 19. You're right, there was even coaching. I loved coaching, but I still didn't quite get the adrenaline rush. So you've got to you've got to find little things that you know give you that little adrenaline rush. For me, it was actually getting a annual pass to Movie World and riding the roller coasters because <laughs> I just got my adrenaline rush out of that. And you know what? That's okay. It's it's just it's just acknowledging what it is that's missing and not trying to not trying to make your job or your study or one thing fulfill everything that's sport has been able to give you because again sport is so unique that you will fill a whole backpack just with an athletic experience whereas the next career and a job or a hobby or study you may not fill your whole backpack and that's just the reality aren't you lucky that you got to fill your backpack
1: I think what you said about work not necessarily utilizing all of those different skills I think having a work-life balance even as a professional is also important so taking the skills that you learn and trying to keep a work-life balance as an athlete and then transitioning into the business keeping that work-life balance so that you can get that adrenaline rush in your hobbies or wherever it is Um, yes I have spoken to a few athletes now about when they've performed at their peak Susie Mm Ballow, who I spoke to not long ago was an Australian shooter she said that her peak performance level was when it was, she she likened it to a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like you've fallen off the cliff, likened mm-hmm. it to sitting at that 8 or 9 level where your knees are knocking, your heart's beating out of your chest. On the flip side, I've also spoken to athletes that said they perform best when they're at their calmest. Um, mm. What impact do you see an athlete's mental well-being having on their ability to perform at an optimum level?
0: Hmm. Good question. Look, mental well-being, I mean, it's tricky when we talk about mental well-being because everyone has a different perspective on what it means, yeah? There's been a lot of talk the last probably five to ten years with Beyond Blue um, and Headspace talking about mental health, mental well-being, mental illness, in sport, we're primarily focused on mental well-being from the perspective of building our capacity to face adversity as successfully as possible, right? Now, I think that's actually a, a skill or a quality that we should have um, as a focus for everyone, not just athletes. I think young, young professionals in work, it's the same thing. Yes, being able to put ourselves in a position where we ebb and flow like a like a reed can bend with the breeze you know just that ability to ebb and flow as as we face things okay so i guess in terms of an athlete's mental well-being the more that an athlete is able to have or create a sense of calm just in their life so not just when we think about calm as in, oh, you know, you just need to breathe and stay calm. But when an athlete can have a level of calm in their life where they feel like they've got an element of control, they can accept that there's going to be change and uncertainty, they can maintain focus under pressure. When we have all of those things set up, then performance can sit at, sit at its peak or an athlete has a greater chance to perform at their peak. When an athlete is constantly under stress from a range of different perspectives, then it's highly unlikely that an athlete is going to perform at their best. So whether an athlete needs or, or identifies that they you know, perform best when they're feeling calm or they perform best when they're at that eight or nine knees knocking, that, that I guess is like the continuum of stress or nerves. You know? So for any athlete they can perform anywhere on that continuum. Some, some need to be super, super calm, and that might be someone more like a shooter um, who needs to you know, drop the heartbeat and keep everything calm in order to shoot the target, as opposed to maybe at the other end of wrestling or team sport where you, know, you need to be really quite energised. So athletes can sit anywhere on that continuum. It, it's all about them knowing themselves and knowing when they perform their best. And I I think that's the key thing. If an athlete can start to get clear about, ah, you know what, for my sport and for me, I perform best when I'm in this state, then they're going to have a greater chance of replicating high performance and therefore success.
1: Yeah, that's really good advice. I hadn't really thought about it. I was interested when I had spoken to other athletes and they had mentioned the different levels of stress that they performed their best at. I, for one when I was younger, really thrived Mm -hmm. under pressure and loved that, like, adrenaline rush. And then as I got older and started to transition out of sport, I realised that I didn't perform as well under that pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was interesting to see how it does change, and I guess it is that, like, ebb and flow of, like, as you get older and as you mature, finding what works best for you at that time. That's Um, right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely – there's so many – Factors, You know, like you say, it's it's your age, it's the expertise level in terms of your sport, you know, where you're at. Um, it's where where you are in terms of um, your career in that sport. Are you towards the end? Are you at the start? The major influences in your life are, you know, are you young but your parents putting lots of pressure on Are you're young and your parents aren't putting pressure on? Are you towards the end of your career and you've got a plan for after career? So there's no stress. You just get in and do what you've done. Have you got no plan and you're stressing about, gosh, I've got to perform at my best because I've got nothing else afterwards anyway, like there are all of those factors that come into play that I think impact on how you perform. So that's where the wellbeing, the transition, the career planning I think is quite critical to start having conversations about as you're heading towards that end of journey, like not not waiting till the end or it's really it's just too hard. But, you know, in those last couple of years, I think it's really critical.
1: Mm -hmm. You've worked with a number of Olympic athletes and now in your role actually advising the Australian Olympic Committee on peak performance and creating those strategies to build performance. How Mm -hmm. have your strategies changed over the last uh, decade or so in sports psychology? Has there been much of a change in terms of, I don't know, let's say work-life balance
0: Look, um, I think there's a few things that have changed over time. I think with individuals, there used to be more of a focus um, in terms of performance. There used to be more of a focus as a psychologist on helping an athlete to change their negative thoughts or stop their negative thoughts. Um, and that that probably 15, 20 years ago used to be the fundamental approach where you, know, you, you might say to me, oh, Georgia, I'm you know, I'm thinking I'm going to perform terribly today or I'm going to stuff up or I'm going to fall. And and we go, okay, well, how do we change that thought? Um, What we have probably realised a little more in the last 10 to 15 years is that we all have automatic thoughts that are typically negative, not because we're being a negative Nancy, but rather because our brain is built to help us stay safe. And that negativity is not really negative. It's actually a safety mechanism that encourages us to just pause and pay attention because this may not be a safe environment you're stepping into. Now, we all know with sport, you know, it's not really a super threatening environment. It's not like, you know, a lion's going to jump out of the pool when you're about to dive in or <laughs> anything like that. But that doesn't stop the brain from perceiving that we're, we're a little bit stressed and nervous and the brain will try to um, find a way to keep us safe and the only way to do that is to help us create stories that, you know, there's this panic and please, you know, please, Jamie, will you go home and wrap yourself in a doona and eat a bucket of ice cream because you'll be a lot safer there than jumping out on the, um, you know, with your skates on.
1: Is that like a modern day fight or flight
0: response? Correct, yeah, absolutely. And we knew that. I know that our research tells us that we knew that 15, 20 years ago but we didn't pay as much attention to it in the training and development of the psychologists coming through um, because it, we, we I guess we didn't have the technology to connect the, the psychobiology and the psychology together. So now that we, you know, we have the technology to be able to read what the brain is doing, um, we have greater understanding of that stress response, so the flight, fight or freeze response. And so now a lot more of the work that we do is about helping athletes first and foremost accept that their brain is doing a great job trying to keep them safe from stress but knowing that we're actually not under the biggest danger in the world and so we need some strategies to put in place that prevent us from chewing on all of the negative thoughts or prevent us from breathing really fast or you know, prevent us from throwing up or whatever (laughs) might be our response to such high levels of stress, which then allow us to perform at our best.
1: I know that each athlete, each person, every individual would be different in those strategies, but are there Mm -hmm. any broad strategies that across people, whether they're in business or sport, you've seen work?
0: Absolutely. Look, I've worked now across athletes, young professionals, medical teams, research teams, it is all the same at the core fundamental piece. And that is that we need to, what I say to people is, we need to calm the farm, right? That's just my language. Mm -hmm. Calm the farm means we need to calm things down a little so that our brain can work to its most effective capacity. Because for most sport, we need to think as clearly as possible because we're trying to execute, we're trying to decision make, we're trying to listen for guns or whistles or bells or whatever it is. And in order for our brain to work as effectively in terms of our ability to think, our our system needs to be a little more calm. Now I'm not saying calm as in, you know, lie down and sip a pina colada or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more the fact of if we can reduce our heart rate a little just by taking some slower deeper breaths. We trigger the brain to not pump as much adrenaline through the system. It's it's really it's really quite a simple scientific or biological process that goes on in our system and if we can if we can reduce the amount of adrenaline and cortisol that gets pumped through our body, then we allow the front of our brain to actually work more effectively because what happens is when we're under high levels of stress, all the resources in the brain get pulled towards the base of the brain, which is the, I guess what we'd call like the instinct part of the brain, which is where our flight and fight response happens. So everything, all resources get drawn to there because our priority is to keep ourselves safe, get out of danger. Now, the last thing we want is for those resources in the brain, the blood and the fuel and everything. The last thing we want is for it to go to the front of the brain, which is our thinking brain. And, and sit there and allow us to ponder, hmm, I wonder whether we should run away from the lion or whether we should sit here. Mm-hmm. Pardon my sarcasm again. So, you know, the, the concept is that the sooner we can calm the brain, then our resources can flood the rest of the brain and the front of the brain and we can think a bit more clearly. The more clearly we can think, usually the better we can perform.
1: It sounds, it makes sense. It, um, I guess it's something you have to practice a little bit more. I think athletes, yeah, they are pretty good at managing stress, but I think um, even just simple strategies like that are really important. And I guess it's a good reminder as well for me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: I mean, look, it's um, particularly through COVID. I think I've talked about it again and again to people that, you know, we overcomplicate it. We, We get ourselves all worked up on a range of different things and we're not pausing to look inwards and think to ourselves, hang on, am I calm enough to make this decision? And again, I'm not saying relaxed and have a sleep, but have I just calmed the farm a little by just taking three deep breaths? That's that's it, just to get things started. Three deep breaths, slow it down a little, broaden my perspective so that my brain can think a little more clearly
1: and then make the choices that we need to make. I have two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine the culture of a team or a business organization can play quite a large role in this athlete mental well-being and also creating a culture that is not basically putting people in that fight or flight response all the time and stressing them. Um, Mm. What resources have you seen organizations, so that could be business or sporting organizations, put in place to help build a supportive culture around mental health and mental well-being? Sure.
0: Well, look, um, I guess there's two good examples that I can provide. So um, with the Australian swim team, I can give um, an example. In terms of well-being for, for the impact of performance, I do remember um, at the Rio Olympics that the head coach at the time, Jaco Ferreron, he was really good at role modelling, calmness and well-being in the process of preparing to perform at an Olympics. We knew that the Rio Olympics was going to be a little bit different because there wasn't the amount of funding. Things were very much behind in terms of the building of buildings, the priorities yep. um, and venues. So we knew there were going to be some challenges. So, you know, each, uh, I think every, two or three days, we'd have a team meeting, he would get up and he would talk about any news coming from the Australian Olympic Committee about the Olympics, the venue, any of those kinds of bits of news. And rather than his approach being very fearful or stressed, he would come across quite relaxed. He'd say, well, in other news, Interestingly, anything can happen at an Olympics, and he would often introduce it with that. Anything can happen at an Olympics, and what we now know is that um, you know the workers have poured concrete down the toilets, so they're not flushable at the moment. You know, and m- in many scenarios, if that was spoken about in a fearful or stressful way, athletes would be panicked. Oh my God, how are we going to flush toilets? Well, what's going to happen? <laughs> But the team were never phased by any of the little dramas that occurred because the head coach really modelled that style of, oh, well, things can happen. We will ebb and we will flow. And he did a wonderful job of doing that. So that's just an example, you know, in that really high performance space, how do you maintain people's calm and well-being, which, mm-hmm. which is what calmness is, is about in order to maintain the, their focus on performance. So that's one example. I've also been working with an energy company based in Melbourne during COVID. And they, um, they've been just having some get togethers of an evening online just to talk about their general mental well-being. So, um, you know, each fortnight we would get together for an hour in the evening and I would run a bit of an information session around stress and around how our brains perform under pressure, how we interact with people under pressure, you know, what can work well and what doesn't work well. Um, we've also talked about, you know, the working from home arrangements uh, and all of those kinds of things, and done stretch sessions and small yoga sessions. And they've been really useful for not only enhancing the mental well being of those staff members who are not at all athletes, oh, I think there were a couple of athletes in there, um, but primarily maintain well-being, but also build connection between people. And when you bring people together to talk in a really safe, facilitated way about how they're travelling and how they're coping and why they might be bumping into the personal obstacles or relationship obstacles, you see teams really flourish and blossom, which,
1: which is the case with this team, which was fantastic. It's um especially in Melbourne, I can imagine that would be quite an important thing for businesses to be doing, considering they've only just started to relax on the lockdown measures. So
0: yeah, yes. I, I can imagine
1: that's been quite a um, difficult time for those guys over there. Absolutely. I do have one last question, and it's a mm-hmm. question that I ask every guest, and it's how we finish off every podcast episode. So what's next? Oh, what's next?
0: Oh, big question. Well... I was hoping to have time to think about that um, because we would have had the 2020 Olympics and then I would have had my four months of recovery (laughs) and therefore I would have had time to ponder what's next At this point in time, what's next over the next 12 months really is the focus on 2021 Games Mm -hmm. um, and how we support that. At the same time, I'm working at QUT as a uh, career educator for the um, PhD students for Mm -hmm. QUT and I'm really enjoying that. So um, I'll I'll sit in that space for a little while because I'm quite enjoying working with researchers to understand what's in their backpack. And what's their transition from their current career, which is, you know, a three or four year massive thesis um, out into the real world of work. Uh, So, yeah, so I'm just just adapting, I guess, the skills that I have in my backpack to apply to just a different cohort and help them to perform at their peak as they transition into whatever their next chapter is. As for 10 years time, I'm really I'm really not sure. I don't know.
1: We'll have to wait and see. I think. We'll to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you mentioned it before where you said if you're looking at 10 years' time, you probably need to start thinking about it at the <laughs> seven year mark. So you've got plenty of time for that.
0: <laughs> exactly. You need to interview me in, say, three years' time. So I'll give you an update of where I'm up to.
1: Yeah, post Olympus. I'm sure no reflection. matter what it
0: will be, it will be working with people to enhance their performance in life or work or whatever it is so I'm definitely I definitely thrive off that and I do get a little bit of adrenaline from that which is great Mm -hmm. so I know it will definitely be in that space but as to whom the cohort will be I'm not sure
1: wonderful I can't wait Hmm. to see thank you that's all we've got time for today I am super grateful that you could join I think this is a really interesting episode and I think a lot of athletes and people will learn a lot from it so thank you you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much to Georgia Ridler for joining us on this week's episode of So What's Next. We do have a couple episodes left of this season. However, in the episode today, we did reference a couple of the past episodes. So if you want to check them out, that was Lauren Mitchell, which was episode number one of season one. We also referenced uh, Sam Hall and Chelsea Lee's episode, which has just gone out not long ago, and Susie Ballow. So I will put all of those episodes in the show notes if you want to check them out. As for upcoming episodes, if you want to hear more and you really enjoyed the episode, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. We've also got an Instagram page called Podcasts So What's Next. So please head on over there. We've got some quotes and photos and all of that jazz. Um, but yes, I, I do always appreciate your support. So if you like the episode, please go hit subscribe and stay tuned for next week's episode. Thank you so much for joining.